Welcome to Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. I'm your host, Tyler. And I am your also host, Dax. <laughs> this is a video game history podcast, and each episode we talk about some kind of thing from video game history, perhaps cultural, um, perhaps a weird piece of tech, perhaps a, a phrase from gaming no one's heard before, or like thought about before, rather. It could be anything related to gaming, so long as it's, um, I don't know has some kind of historical relevance. Yes, and one of us did research and the other one just listens. And yes. we kind of emulate some sort of conversation out of that principle that sometimes seems to be interesting to one of us and the other one just goes along with it. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes, that's so interesting, Docs. Awesome. Thank you. Tell me more about oh. Peter Molyneux, please. Wow, this guy mm. I've never heard of. I actually Beans. fucking love that episode. <laughs> What have you been up to, man? Well, um, honestly, same shit as last episode, writing my dissertation, painting Necrons from 40k, and I just I just am in love with Death Stranding, and I just want to inject it into my eyeballs as quickly as possible. Yeah, do that. That's a good idea. I would also do that. Let's not get too much into Death Stranding. I'm really excited for today's episode, though. But before yeah. we start, um, how would one contact us if one would like to hang out? Uh, so the easiest way to find me is on Twitch. I'm vegan Tyler on Twitch. You could also send me an email at uh, vegantylerttv at gmail.com. We take episode suggestions, comments, feedback, discussions of how beautiful we are, any of those. Yeah, and if you want to contact me, please contact my secretary, uh, vegan Tyler, on uh, Twitch. He, I handle all. Yeah, I handle all mail for docs. Yeah, and um from next week on you'll have to do telephone too but i didn't you 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 you'll get the memo tomorrow i see well let me just tell you the messages that i've received on your behalf are very sexual and um it's really awkward to handle those but listen man you know i can hook a bro up you can you can do that (laughs) okay (laughs) (laughs) you want to get started (laughs) yeah yeah, we can get started that's fine All right. Our story begins in 1983 when the Famicom was released. For those of you outside of Japan, you probably know this as the Nintendo Entertainment System or the NES. I often heard it just called the Nintendo back in the day. So that was we talked about that in the Sonic episode already, right? Because they were kind of the opposing faction to the Sega Yes, although, well, as we'll talk about here in a second, they dominated the market for a long time. Yeah. And there's some reasons for that that I think maybe we could cover in another episode, like why they had this like meteoric rise. But surprise, uh, suffice to say, rather, that they... Um, suffice to say that they dominated the market for a while. So it comes out in 1983, and it's doing very well in Japan. And to give you an idea of how well it did, by one metric, they had sold 12 million systems by 1987 and that's a ton 
right? So like something like a third of all Japanese homes contained a Famicom. And this is just because they were pretty much unchallenged in the gaming market at, at that time. So, so again, they had kind of an, a monopoly in the video game market for home video gaming. Yeah, it wasn't a complete monopoly, but they were seen to be the best, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so like not a monopoly where they're the only competitor, but they were the only competitor seen to be of relevance. Okay. Okay. So they, they chug along for four years. And in 1987, a company called Nomura Securities had taken an interest in them and they wanted in. So you're probably like, why the hell does this company want anything to do with Nintendo? Is it a like Nomura Security as whether a security firm? I think that they did stuff with your telephone line. Oh, this seems like like the mafia moving into your business. <laughs> like, eh, you know, you've got nice business here. Would be a shame <laughs> if something happened to it. <laughs> oh, boy, look at all these cartridges you've got here. Boy, that'd be really terrible if we had to throw them on the ground and smash them with a baseball bat. Uh, so, yeah. You can okay. think of them as the, the phone line <laughs> mafia if you'd like. <laughs> okay, but they, uh, just just some telephone firm and they wanted in on the um, video game business. Uh, yeah, so they wanted in. They they wanted to work with Nintendo. And so they had this thought. What if you could connect your Famicom to your telephone service provider and then use your Famicom for stuff that wasn't gaming? Okay, Ooh. so like... Get the weather, check your stock prices, maybe even trade some stocks. And so the story goes that the president of Nintendo, Hiroshi Yamauchi, if I'm saying his name correctly, uh, was sitting in a lecture one day next to some unnamed person from Nomura Securities. We don't know who this person is, just we know that he sat next to this person. And whoever this person was, they pitched this idea to Yamauchi. And you like are like, hey, maybe we could develop this network together. Oh, nice. So they just randomly sat next to him and were like, we have this <laughs> business offer for you that you will have a hard time refusing. How mm -hmm. about you say yes and we don't break your kn kneecaps? <laughs> Boy, it really seems like you like walking around. <laughs> It'd be nice if you could continue doing that. <laughs> okay. So it was a random random encounter, which often happens in the video game. We had, we had this um, a few times already. Yeah. So Yamauchi is into the idea, but he's kind of like, well, I need more info. I need to talk to my guys, right? And so at face value, to give you an idea of what his vision for the company was here in the late 80s, he wanted to expand the Famicom beyond games. And, and, and make it more than just a place to play games and, and like something that had been targeted mostly toward children. And so note that this isn't the first time that this had been done or even suggested. Other companies like Atari had tried out systems like this before, but they didn't really do well. It was like limited fanfare. But, but Yamauchi is like, maybe this is my chance, you know, to, to fulfill this vision where the Famicom is like so ingrained in people's lives that it's basically like, as popular as like a telephone, okay? Yeah, we already talked about in the Populous episode that the Commodore itself wasn't supposed to be a gaming system. So mm -hmm. this seems similar. Yes, exactly. So Yamauchi walks down or drives down or however he got there, takes a trip to Nintendo Manufacturing Headquarters, specifically to what they call Nintendo 
R&D 2, right? Like research and development 2. Yeah. So you're going to hear me talk about R&D 2 a bunch of th- times in this episode. It's not R2D2. Uh R&D 2. So beep boop, beep boop, beep boop. Uh he goes to the manager of the the division, uh Masayuki Uemura, which I'll just refer to him as his last name Uemura from now on. And he drops this landline telephone on his desk. And he tells him that his task as the head of R&D is to figure out whether it's possible to make a peripheral that would hook the Famicom up to the telephone network. Okay? Yeah. So, side story about uh, Uemura. He joined the company in 1977, worked his way up, eventually becoming the manager of the research division, and... It's hard to find like a ton of info here, but I know that he worked on a, t- a bunch of stuff like throughout the, we'll talk about throughout this episode. And at this time he's 44 years old. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So Uemura, okay. The, the buck's been passed to Uemura. So Uemura goes down to Nomura securities and he's like, I want to meet with you and talk about this venture that you've proposed to us. And so they have this big meeting. They have this whole presentation that they roll out that they want to do. Okay, you know, you're schmoozing with this liaison from Nintendo. You want to get it right. Okay. They introduce their big plans for the Famicom. What if, and this, these aren't their words. I'm going to basically inject, inject some of this. Like, what if it was basically like a home computer? Okay. You could do all this extra stuff on your gaming console. And they say, what we'll do, no more securities, is we'll develop all the computer programs to make it work on the network, and you, Nintendo, will create the modem and the hardware. Yeah. So that's that's the pitch. Again, Uemura is hesitant. Apparently, R&D2 had already talked about creating a modem, but they were like, why would you need this? We don't see the need. Why would you make games that are required to play with other people to be fun. How would that even be fun? Like That's, that's such a weird idea, right? Who would right? like to play a game only with others? That makes no sense at all. Yeah, they're like, why would you want to add this additional requirement for a game to be fun, to have other people <laughs> connected to it? Games are supposed to be just you, yeah, right? Yeah, like, just know what, you have to know what you're doing, right? It's nonsense. Yeah. Games are just for, <laughs> just for yourself. Nobody yeah, just knows. for you, right? And so they were like, the team got together and they talked about this and they're like, yeah, we don't even know that we could make games that could be played over a network that would even be entertaining. Yeah. And I just, before we even move on, I just want to say I love this because um, from from the beginning, even from the inception, Nintendo has had issues with internet, right? Like yeah. it's, it's 2020 and the Switch is a horrible internet provider, right? Like to play with your friends. And but that's uh, still part of Nintendo's concept, right? That video games essentially always need to be playable in single player. Yes. And the single player experience is the main focus. Yes. I would, I mean, you know, I can't speak for Nintendo and I will say that they have changed some of that focus over time, but yes. Yeah. Uh, also when I was talking to um, Carrie about this, um, Carrie helped us write the last, uh, the Harvest Moon episode. Uh, she was like, if you ever want to know why Nintendo has had problems with netcode, just point to this. This is where it all started, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So they're like, he talks to the team, they hash it out. And they're like, okay, this time it's going to be different though, because we won't be developing all of it. Someone else is going to be making this connective software 
and we'll keep making the hardware like we're good at. And they're like, well, also, maybe we can't think of ways that we could make games exciting yet, but if we make the modem, like we create the whole system, then we could do whatever we want with it. Like once the hardware's there, we can worry about making games later. Okay? Yeah. All right, so they decide they're going to do it. They get the ball rolling. They create this partnership, and they start developing this in 1987. And they decide to call the machine the Family Computer Network System. Famcom sneezes. <laughs> they sometimes called it the Famcom Net System, or as I'll call it, the Famicom Modem. Nice. Okay. I'm going to gloss over a lot of this development, and there's reasons why I'm doing this. Yeah. Uh, so basically, imagine this. You had, your, you had your, your Famicom, and you took this piece, and you plugged it into the top of the Famicom, where the cartridges would go. Then you'd plug in a, a, a controller that was like a keyboard. It's like a miniature keyboard that had like numbers on it. It wasn't like a full keyboard, but it had like numbers on it that you could use to like do things and navigate the menus. And so then you'd, you'd plug in the modem, right? And the modem could receive signals from your phone line that would transmit data. And so apparently you could even use it while you were talking on the phone, though I don't know how well, but like, that's really interesting to me because do you remember the early days of the internet where you couldn't do both? Yeah, I remember that. I remember my brother playing Command and Conquer over the modem and none of us could do anything via the <laughs> telephone for the entire day because he wouldn't he wouldn't stop even if you asked him to. <laughs> I was really lucky that um long story, we had, we had two landlines yeah. um when I was a kid and one of them fell out of use very quickly. And so that one became the one that we hooked up to use the internet on. So, you know, we didn't have to worry about the the whole issue of like, I want to use the phone, quit playing StarCraft. (laughs) (laughs) That's mostly what I use it for, StarCraft and Diablo. Mom, just construct more pylons. (laughs) Mom, I have to wipe out the Zerg. You don't understand. In 1988... They sent out 1,500 prototypes of this add-on to existing customers of Nomura Securities. So they pick 1,500 people from their pool of customers, and they send them these things, and they're like, test them, see what you think. So, interesting what, thing what, about one this. Second. Account- one second. Yeah. What, what does the thing do again? Like, I know it connects to the modem. It goes on the internet. But what does it do? Like, what's better than a telephone? What like- So... Good question. I was going to talk about this a little bit later, but this is fine. So essentially what you could do with it is you could get these little cartridges that let you do stuff. Uh, but the main thing that they were they were toting it as was a thing that would let you check stock prices. Okay? Because 1988, the Japanese stock market was starting to bubble. Okay? Uh-huh. So you know about, for those of you who don't know about stocks, right? They talk about it bubbling and then bursting and bubbling and bursting, right? So stocks are on the rise. The economy looks really good and they're in a bubble. And I read a story where like, this is like a, a point in time where people were so invested in stocks and like what stock prices are and that there would be people standing outside with like, with boards of what the stock prices were. And they would like, look at those boards to figure like physical boards, not like a marquee yeah, yeah, yeah. to like, figure out what the prices were. So the idea is, is that they were trying to sell this as you can do stuff on it. You can like 
get some very like limited news and you can get these other cartridges that like maybe let you do some stuff with banking. Uh, but the main thing that they were selling it as was something you could use to check the stock market and you could even trade stocks with it. That's cool. Yeah. For, for any of you confused about that, you could go out into the street that that was possible. Um, yeah. Like a year ago, I know that this this is not possible anymore because we live in the post-apocalypse now. But this was a thing, so you could meet people outside, which is kind of insane too. Also, part of video game culture to actually meet people. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys remember when you could go to bars and you could like go meet someone for a drink? Yeah, we don't do bars anymore, Tyler. Let's not get sad now. We don't do bars anymore. <laughs> Maybe that's for the best. What do bars really give us anyway? So, but, but they also wanted it to be a financial thing, which was also to pitch back to that Commodore's idea. Mm -hmm. Let's yes. make this a an, an 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 accounting tool that was for accounting, but um, the 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 number crunching aspect seems the same. Yeah. So there's this market then, essentially, for people who want to check their stock prices at a much quicker rate. Sure. Um. So the trial families that get them, from what I understand, were into them. And they're like, okay, let's let's rock and roll here. And they start mass production. And so by the end of 1988, they had rolled out this system to the mass market. Right off the bat, major issues with the tech. The circuit boards would fail. The servers that, uh, like whatever the system was that Nomura Securities ran had stability issues. Um, if you needed to get something fixed, they would send someone out to your house to like look at it. And often they wouldn't be able to fix it. Like they, I read like reports where they were like, yeah, sometimes data transfers will just fail and we have no idea why. Uh, or there'd be like a problem that would appear and they'd send someone out and then it wouldn't be there when they'd get there. Or like the, in the lab, there'd be this horrific problem and then it would just disappear and no one would know why and it never came back. So like it, it, it clearly needed work. Yeah, shit, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And also, even though there was a market for it, there it was hard to market it. And think about it like this. How do you market an add-on to a game console to people who buy and sell stocks, right? Like this isn't a time when gaming was really normalized like, like I would say it is today. And so here's how Uemura put it, quote, It seems that people felt the Famicom was a toy and we weren't able to earn their confidence to the degree that would convince them to use it for trading stocks. Maybe maybe it makes it even harder that it's perceived as a child toy because you would think these people are telling me that I can use this child toy to do serious adult business and I, right. will, I will not trust it. <laughs> yes, of course. I'd rather just go and do it myself. And so also similarly, I guess that ha with how long it took to actually do stock transfers from the console, it was almost easier to just do them the normal way, right? Like it was like, it, it was almost unnecessary, I guess. Yep. Then also, unfortunately, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're toting this as this thing that can, can do all of your stock market stuff. So uh, the stock market went into decline, like right after that. And a large portion of the people who bought it to use it got out of the stock market and didn't want to do it anymore. So that's not the end of our story about this little weird thing, though. Apparently, then, the Japan Racing Association wanted to get involved. And they, uh, <laughs> what's the Japan Racing Association, you ask? They are 
a an association that let people bet on horse races. Huh. Okay. So they created a cartridge for this modem that let of confirmed members of the JRA place bets on horse races from their Famicom. And this took off in the betting community. And apparently they saw, started selling most of their units just to people who wanted to bet on horse races from their home. And those people took over the remaining market. And at one estimate I saw at its peak, 100,000 Famicom systems were using the modems to bet on horse races. Dude, the invention of digital gambling is a gold rush, right? Because yeah. it's, it's big money today, too. And if you get the casino into the homes of the people, they will not be able to escape their addiction. It's genius. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, EA figured it out with loot boxes. So, <laughs> yes. so yeah, so how fucking crazy is that? But, all right, so they tried to make games for it. Remember, they said, okay, we'll make games for it later. And they tried to make games for it, and apparently there are five prototype games that they worked on that were never released to the public. Um... So here's some issues. So they wanted to create multiplayer, but you would have to play across your phone line for long periods of time. So there was one, the issue that it could cut out because it was kind of unreliable. Two, as every time you use the service, it cost you money. Like it was like a pay per use kind of thing. Like the longer you used it, the more it cost. And so games can take a while, right? And so the longer you used it to play, the more your, your bill would go up. Um, and so they never ended up really making games for it. And so the only gaming related thing that really came from it was they basically created this thing for gaming stores that was like a database. You could hook up this like to this like database. They called it like, the Super Mario Club. And it gave you reviews that actual people had made for different games. So like a game would come out real people would review them, add it to the network, or like they'd pull reviews from like Fam Famitsu, that big gaming magazine. And then that not only let customers decide what games they should buy, but it also told gaming stores what games they should prioritize. And so it was kind of popular with gaming shops. Apparently 3,000 shops in Japan had the Super Mario Club at some point. That's a hyper helpful tool to have yeah. some kind of, like, like the review system on any modern um, video game distribution software that exists now. Yeah. Other random stuff that was made for it, you could buy stamps. Um, yeah, right? I see your face. How would you do this? I don't know. Uh, the Bridgestone Tire Company created a fitness program that was only to be used for their employees. Um, banks tried with limited success to let you manage your bank accounts from the thing, but it didn't really take off either. Um, they thought they'd break into the U.S. market. That didn't pan out because apparently they had some kind of scheme where from the console you'd be able to play the lottery and buy virtual scratch-offs. And so they did a test market in Minnesota, but the government at the time got pissed thinking like, well, wait, you're literally putting actual gambling on game consoles targeted toward children. And the state government passed a law banning electronic gaming at the time, which then just killed the whole thing dead in the water. That's cool. Wow. The government intervening on gambling advertised to children. Can't imagine how that feels. <laughs> no. 
If only, if only we could imagine it today. <laughs> we are hyper cynical today. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> we are hyper cynical today. That's okay. Yes. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> uh, okay. So if you couldn't tell, it was not a commercial success, and they shut yeah. down most of the systems in the network in 1991. So there just wasn't the market that they wanted, and and. I also think I read somewhere that N- Nintendo, like, internally was not particularly pleased that this thing that they had made, specifically just to be like, oh, it's going to add all this stuff to your home, just took off as a horse racing gambling unit, right? Awesome. Like, I love yeah, that. right? Like, you, like, let it, leave it to, leave it to humans to be like, no, I want to gamble. I, <laughs> so. I, I picture my dad even though he wasn't into horse racing, but he was into sports, screaming at his console. <laughs> <laughs> like, full-on angry sport dad. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, white lightning! White lightning, you can do it! <laughs> I think, like, and don't quote me on this, because I couldn't find, like, pictures of the software, but I'm pretty sure all it did was let you bet, and then I think it just told you what the results were. I don't think you got to watch the race. That's anticlimactic. Isn't it? <laughs> it, it? It gets rid of all of the useless stuff in the gambling, right? Yeah, yeah. Straight, right. straight to the cripple your financial life part. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's not the end of our story, and we're going to detour a little bit. 1990, a Japanese television company in Akasaka, Tokyo, called, and I could be pronouncing this wrong. I'm pretty sure it's called Wow Wow. Okay, mm-hmm. Wow Wow Incorporated decided to create a subsidiary company that we're going to be talking about called ST Giga. I'm pretty sure the ST stands for satellite. Okay. For a while in my head, I was calling them Saint Giga. Saint Giga. Saint Giga. Oh yes. Saint Giga patron saint of satellites. Um, (laughs) So uh, I'm just going to call them Giga because it's easier. Okay. So the idea behind the new company, create a satellite radio station which was very new tech at the time. And from all reports that I could find, I believe that this was the first digital satellite radio station in the world. Cool. Now, satellite radio tech was around since the 80s, but it wasn't really commercially viable for a while. Mostly it just is in the hands of governments. The U.S. tried to get a satellite radio thing going in the early 90s, like kind of around the same time, but hit a whole bunch of of snags. And they didn't launch their first satellites until early 2000. And I think to those of you in the U.S., you've probably heard of Sirius Radio and XM Radio. Those are the two big ones. Um, But, you know, we're talking a decade later. And from what you told me, Docs, because I asked you about this the other day, Germany had radio stations like this in the early 90s, but they were state run, right? Most radio stations in Germany are just generally state-run. Yeah. Okay. What's the reasoning for that? In Germany, we just have a lot of government-owned and thereby independent networks for TV okay. and radio. The idea is to keep the independence of these networks protected by the government. So I guess a, I guess a United States version of that would probably be NPR, which is our radio station, um, and uh, probably PBS, the public broadcasting service cool um never heard of those yeah so actually little side note when people tell me that they want um unbiased political news or news in general that's where i send them so um sometimes they're so unbiased that it's painful for me (laughs) but (laughs) that's fine okay so 
Okay. The important part here is that this is pretty new tech for 1990, right? Like you could have people listening to your radio station anywhere. You were no longer tethered to the, the range of a, like a radio tower, right? So long as they were in range of the satellite and there was nothing wrong with the satellite. So they, they, they start doing stuff in 1990 and they start putting out broadcasts sometime in that year. And their goal was to deliver quote, ambient and new age music with and high concept programming through subscription radio broadcasts, end quote. And I guess the big draw were these broadcasts that they called Tide of Sound, which were like these ambient nature noises or like other similar naturey type things that would then have like spoken word like narration over them by this guy they called the voice who would come and talk to you and they were like very like relaxing. Your life is good. You will achieve lots of things today. Nothing can ever hurt you. You are a strong person. Feel the rain inside of you. Like that? <laughs> yeah, like that. <laughs> Just like that. Nice. You are that. your own inner rain shower. <laughs> I don't want to be my inner rain shower. Do you hear the baying of the coyotes? You are free, just like they are. Run free, little coyote. Run free across the plains. <laughs> and they, they they like transmitted that over the radio yeah yeah this was like kind of like the major draw so assuming that you had the subscription model and you were paying for it yeah okay so they launch and they start getting clients and they developed this sort of like niche following i guess and they were pretty successful in the beginning because people were like holy shit this is so cool and then they start having trouble keeping their funding high enough to pay the bills, right? Like they grew, but like they couldn't do the things that they wanted to do. There was also this recession. Remember I mentioned that like the stock market started to like have a downturn. They hit a recession in the 90s and it made people in Japan less likely to buy the equipment that they needed to have satellite radio. Yeah. So <clears throat> you're probably wondering what the hell this has to do with video games. And here's where a weird partnership occurs. Nintendo sees this company and this cool new tech. And they say, hmm, we've tried something like this before, but let's dig our heels in a little bit more. And they decide that what they're going to do is they're going to invest in Giga to try and bail it out because they were close to bankruptcy. So Nintendo shows up, buys a majority stake in the company, I think which was around 20%, and basically take it over. Using this newfound power in the company, they decide that they want to work together to create an add-on for the Super Nintendo or the Super Famicom that would utilize satellite radio. This is an era, remember, that you couldn't get mass market high-speed internet in the early 90s unless like, I don't know, you were on like a college campus or like in a research develop research and development place or like you work for the government. Most people had really slow dial-up. So this is a big deal that they want to develop something that will utilize this. And so almost immediately after they acquire Giga, they start working on the unit. And so here's the plan. Giga is for the most part going to just continue what they were doing. They're going to broadcast the stuff they used to broadcast, except during a specific three to six hour window during the day, they would air Nintendo specific content. And so this content would get broadcast inside of homes, not just radio shows. And most of this service would be geared toward adults. 
even the games that they wanted to use the system for. And you're probably like, what the hell does that mean? What's Nintendo-specific content? Would it would it be like these very obvious advertisements? Hey, Sam, have you heard of this company, Nintendo? They sell these really cool consoles. I would really like to acquire one. Yes, Michael, what a splendid idea. I will spend all my paycheck on it today at my local nintendo show think bigger think more along the lines of transmitting data to your famicom through a satellite okay okay i'll describe you what kind of data i'll get to it okay (laughs) (laughs) okay you'll see because it's crazy so the group put in charge of the creation of this system was again r&d2 right and so headed again by Oimura. Uh, I'll note that that division, just to give you a little more context on them, they did most of the hard work for er- hardware work for early Nintendo. So like the, the you know the Famicom, the Super Famicom, the N sixty four, all that stuff. Um, so and and Uemura specifically headed up a lot of these projects. Okay, so uh, behind the scenes, Nintendo's worried. In a lot of ways, they had been on the top of the market for a while, but they had started making missteps. Sega was breaking into the market, right? They were starting to take over a larger share. And one magazine that I read described them as being on the defensive. So knowing this, they make an announcement of this partnership. They're going to create a service called Satellaview, which was just mushing the words satellite and view together. The president of Nintendo said that what this would allow them to do was through this partnership, they would use Giga's radio station to send games over the satellite network to your unit. Okay, to the, to the Satellaview, if I could talk. And by his projections, the device would sell somewhere around 2 million units in the first year. So this then convinced a lot of larger developers to, to join on and start making games that would potentially be used for this add-on system. So big ones that I pulled out, Capcom, Konami, Enix, and Squaresoft both mm-hmm. developed things here before they merged into Square Enix that we know today. Yep. And so the idea is that you could use it to download games and you could use it for a bunch of other stuff too. This is not the first service around this time that let you try to download games. There were a few others. Sega had a couple that maybe we can do an episode on another time. They had created something called the Sega Meganet in 1990 that let you use a modem and you could like play early multiplayer. It was really sparse, not well developed. It didn't do well. I mentioned this and I think in episode one, a whole way back, uh, they had the Sega channel service in 1994 that let you use a cable connection to play your games. But what was different about this one is that Nintendo was throwing their full weight behind it, and it looked like it really had the potential to be something. So the Satellaview hit the Japanese market in April of 1995. The unit cost 18,000 yen, or converting that, about $198 at the time. This was higher than their early announcement figures, which were somewhere around 14,000 yen, or like $150. Or I saw one magazine said it would be about 95 British pounds. But none of those were the final price. They end, it ended up being higher, probably due to the development costs. Yep. All right, let me describe how this unit works for you. <clears throat> let me tell you all the shit you need to set up to get this going, and then we'll talk about what it actually did. Okay. Imagine you have your Super Famicom. 
you take your Super Famicom and you sit it on top of an even larger Super Famicom, like literally like 50% larger. Okay. You plug that in. Yeah. Go ahead. No, just go on. It's okay. I'm <laughs> just, just trying to picture it. <laughs> so um, imagine if you took your, yeah, you put it on top yeah. and then you plug this giant like Game Boy sized cartridge in mm-hmm. and then in that Game Boy sized cartridge was your memory chip and you'd pull that in and out. Yeah. Okay. Then you had to buy receiving equipment if you didn't own it already, which on the high end was 33,000 yen or around $360, depending on how much of it you needed. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Then, uh, well, pause on that. Luckily, some Japanese, like a lot of Japanese homes had a lot of this receiving equipment already, but you still had to buy a custom tuner from uh giga that would allow you to receive these broadcasts and if you didn't want to pay the upfront cost you could rent them i think for around 50 dollars for like six months yeah like but that <laughs> like wouldn't that like take up an entire room in your house with all that equipment like do you do you need a degree in electrical engineering to make it work or something <laughs> You'll see. Okay. <laughs> I'll explain it all here in a minute. Then you had to subscribe to Giga's satellite channel. Okay? Yeah. So you had to buy all this equipment. You had to subscribe to Giga's satellite channel. Not yeah. sure in cost there, but from what I read, they weren't very high. Yeah. You could only buy it from specialty stores. It wasn't mass market. Uh. And then if you couldn't buy it from a specialty store, most people ordered it through the mail. Okay? So <laughs> your face. I know. It's crazy. Here, let me help you here, and I'm actually going to direct our viewers to uh, to the Wikipedia article for Satellaview, because there's a picture that describes it maybe a little bit better than I do. Um, so go, go, go to Wikipedia, go to Satellaview, and look at this picture I'm about to show Docs here. You basically have a satellite dish that connects to a proprietary tuner. The tuner connects to an AV selector. That selector connects to your TV. You plug your Famicom into the selector. The Famicom has to have an extra bracket that transmits power from the Famicom to the Satellaview, and then you have to plug this whole fuck mess into the wall. So a a signal would get transmitted to the satellite dish, which would then go into the tuner, which would then go to a connector, which would then get all get sorted out, and then you could play games. Okay, I know this confuses us now, but this was the 90s and stuff like that was actually pretty normal now that I think of it. You would yeah. always, you'd have these completely over-engineered digital setups that would be far too complicated, and there would be a cliche about only the husband knowing how to do it, and then and everybody else in the family would be very frustrated about it. And yeah, I don't know. I We had this at home. Not this, but we had a setup yeah. that was about as complicated. And we are just spoiled by today's digital setups that are very integrated. And what's really fascinating is, is that, um, you know, I'm in my 30s, but the generation above me, right, like my parents' generation, our parents' generation, I don't know if you've noticed this, but they still think that tech works like this, right? Like... I went to visit, I've told Docs the story off, off, off the podcast, but I went to visit my father before I moved to the West Coast. And uh, 
he couldn't figure out how to get something simple that I set up, that, that I sent him in the mail. He couldn't figure out how to get it set up. And it was literally as easy as plugging it into the TV and turning it on. But maybe, right? Yeah, and that's maybe because he's too afraid to try because he's traumatized mm -hmm. by this kind of technology that they were used to. Like yeah, and when you, I, I climbed behind his entertainment center and there was just like literally like dozens of wires going to nothing that had just been from previous ventures from the 90s that he like, you know, had, had never used or had figured out how to use back then, like wiring he had to do himself. So yeah, this sounds crazy, but Docs is right. This was pretty normal. Yeah. Okay, so it had 256K of save game memory. You could buy an extra flash memory card to plug into it that gave you another megabyte. I think those ran about $50. Uh, I liked this quote from a magazine article about it. Quote, the card's large storage capacity means that gamers who needed extra memory should only ever have to buy one. End quote. Yeah. But in practice, you probably needed more than that if you wanted to keep things, which we'll talk about in a moment. Yeah, one megabyte. That's all you ever need. It's fascinating to think about, right? Just that one megabyte, man. Yeah, we couldn't get into why that is. That one megabyte at that time was a lot, and that is so-called Moore's Law. Uh, was an early computer scientist, and he uh, put out the um, idea, the theory, that the, the space that you could fit transistors on would halve about each year. So you could double your computing power at about every year or every year to every 24 month, which causes the the computing power we have to, to double every year. And we're coming to the point in time in 2020, and we, we even came to it sooner, where Moore's law comes to a physical boundary because you can't make transistors physically smaller because they are, re they are reaching the boundaries of atoms where you can make them reliably work. And this same principle also applies to disk space. So looking back, we're like, oh, wow, a megabyte. Ooh, but it was the early 90s, dude. Like, this is crazy shit. So, okay. So the main cartridge that you would use to access this surface, or service rather, uh, held the entire interface that you, would, that you would use. It was a game that they called BSX. The story of the town with the stolen name. So why they did this, I don't know. But I guess they wanted to make it like its own game, even though it was just, it was kind of like a glorified menu. Like there was like some very light RPG elements where you'd like collect items and stuff. And like to describe to you what it looked like, uh, imagine you had like this top down view in a town where you'd walk around and access things. I've heard it. Um, compared to the style of Earthbound. And I think from what I've watched of the gameplay of this, you know, town with a stolen name, I think it fits. I think it's an apt comparison. Mm -hmm. um, the the BSX stood for Broadcast Satellaview X, which you're going to hear BS in front of a lot of these or BSX. That's just all it stood for. I, so there were like some theories that it stood for Bandai, but Bandai didn't have anything to do with this. So, yeah. Anyway, you have this little avatar, you walk around your town, you collect items, you talk to little NPCs, and then the different buildings in the town were where you would connect to the service that let you download stuff. So it wasn't just this like boring menu, it was like you were in this town and you could go and get stuff, okay? Yeah. 
Now, as I mentioned before, most of the day, Giga was a radio station with programming aired at adults. But every day from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m., there's a broadcast of Nintendo stuff. Uh, in some, I, I read somewhere that some of the later broadcasts were six hours, but for the most part, imagine that there's a period of time during the day when you can get this stuff. Now, sometime during that window, they would send out games to whoever tuned in. And it was just like whatever they were sending out that day. It was scheduled, okay? Yeah. Other than buying the startup costs of the unit and all the peripherals, which were high, you never had to pay for anything in the service, okay? Um, one important note that's going to come up later, no physical cartridges whatsoever. This was all digital. So you could you, you wouldn't buy like you wouldn't go to the store and buy a Satellaview game from at least from what I understand. It was all digitally sent. So you asked me what kind of stuff is on there. So here's the kind of stuff they did. E-magazines. So like little, little magazines you could read about gaming stuff or like world events, stuff going on. Demos of games. Uh, typically when they would send you a demo of a game, you could play them a certain number of times before they would lock and disappear or there was a certain time frame in which you could play it. Like they'd say, you can play this for the next week. Isn't that how shareware worked? Kind of yeah. like, yeah. Although most shareware, yeah, shareware was like a certain number of times, or they'd say a trial month period, or they'd say once you get to a certain point in the game, then you have to buy the full experience. Okay. Uh, because it was the 90s, they'd send out tips, tricks, and cheat codes, right? Get all the hot cheat codes for your favorite games. Um, there was no true multiplayer, mostly due to how the, the connection was mostly one way, yeah. but there was limited data that could be transmitted out very limited. So you could do things like quizzes or like little game shows where you could submit your answers and it would get like sent to like a pool of things, but you couldn't play with other people. Yeah. There were expansions to existing games. This is like. The equivalent of like DLC today. Nice. Okay, one short side to it. At some point in my life, people started calling add-ons DLCs all of a sudden, and I went along with it. But I don't. <laughs> un <laughs> I am not sure if there's an actual difference, or if, or if it was a cultural shift. But you mean like add-ons? There was add-ons for games, right? Add-ons. Yep. Uh, some games were released in episodic content. So this model was to keep people coming back to get new stuff each week and it kept subscriptions going. Sometimes you could just download an entire game over the service. You'd tune in, they'd say, here's a game. You can play it as long as it's on your card. So one really neat feature about this and probably something that is unique to the service is that they would do these things called sound link games. So imagine this, they'd say, At 4 p.m. on Friday, we're going to do a sound link game and it would be a broadcast. And if you played the game during that time, it was like an experience that everybody that was playing at the same time had. So it could be a lot of different things. Imagine that you're playing The Legend of Zelda. Yeah. Okay. Or the version for it. But as you get to a specific event in the game, it plays a cutscene with voices. Okay. Or imagine if you play during that time, instead of the normal music, it's music that's like orchestral. 
that's sent through the radio Mm. wires, right? So for the fucking 90s, this was nuts. And so... Imagine you could play a game at certain times... And the actual, an actual orchestra would play for you live while you play it. Yeah. Sick, dude. Mind-blowing. So a lot of them were like, like there were like narrated stories that were going on with like spoken words of the broadcast, like a radio show. But it was a radio show about the game. And then as it would hit certain parts in the radio show, events would happen in the game. So, for example, let's just make something up. Let's just say they in the, in the radio show they went, oh, no, a really bad storm has appeared. It would start raining in your game. So it felt super interactive. It was really cool. What? Why isn't that done anymore? That's really cool. We'll talk about that at the end because I'm really curious about it myself. And so I read them as described as not quite games, not quite radio broadcasts, not quite television episodes, Though they are games, nonetheless. I love it. Hyper I do too. Immersive, interactive, experimental, satellite, future stuff. And what was really cool about this, too, is that you're experiencing this special thing at the same time with everyone else who's playing, and then it was gone. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So the only way you could ever play it again is if you schedule, if you caught a rerun, and they would do reruns. But those were pretty rare, depending on the game. Yeah. So here are some games of note, because you're probably wondering, like, what the hell was on there? There were three different Zelda games, including one called BS The Legend of Zelda, which was a remake of the original Legend of Zelda, but you played as a character avatar that you picked. And it, again, cutscenes, voiceovers, you'd get to a certain spot in the game, and if you were playing, it would send the data that you needed that cutscene right then, and it'd be, like, voiced over. Uh, There was a popular one called Treasure Conflicts, but like conflicts, but with an X. With an X. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, of course. I like it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It was like an aerial shooter thing. Enix made a Dragon Quest game for it that had Soundlink. Um, Pack-In Video made a Soundlink version of Harvest Moon. Sweet. It was broadcast in four parts and is sort of like a sequel to the original game. And... I got the idea to do this episode when I was looking at stuff for Harvest Moon and I stumbled across it and I was like, Satellaview? What? The, f- the fuck is that? <laughs> right? Awesome. So, yeah. You know, uh, our buddy our buddy Jay has been playing that game Sheer in the Wanderer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did an episodic version of Sheer in the Wanderer that was four Ooh, episodes. Neat. Uh, F-Zero had two games. Fire Emblem had a game. There was a SimCity game. A bunch of Super Mario stuff, just tons of things. One thing of note that really fascinated me. Those of you who have listened to the podcast for a while know that I really like Chrono Trigger and I really am enamored with the sequel Chrono Cross. Note that Chrono Trigger, popular at the time, had several extra releases. Um, One was a jet bike racing game because there's a part in Chrono Trigger where you like race on a jet bike. It's like a really terrible mini game that I hate. Well, they made a jet bike racing game that you could play. There was a character library where you could read about all the different monsters and characters in the game. There was a music library where you could play music from the game if you wanted to. Uh, note that if you ever played the PS1 version or most of the, re- the releases afterward, that they included the character library and the music library, but I've never seen them include the Jetpack Racing game anywhere else. Sweet. But of major note... 
There was a game that they made that was a sequel to Chrono Trigger, and it was called Radical Dreamers. Radical. Radical. It was a text-based adventure game that ended up being non-canalytical, but served as the baseline inspiration for Chrono Cross. Uh. And I never realized it, but they only made it for the Satellaview. So, like, no wonder I never ran into it. Yeah. It was a full game, too. So I think I was just really surprised how much they made for it. And like, this is some of the first real downloadable content, if you want to use that phrase, right? Yeah, it's like a subscription service too, right? Yeah, and it wasn't all garbage. It was like this interactive online marketplace, right? And you could like download games. Like, how cool is that for the time? If you were just doing a pitch for me, I'd be down for that. Yeah. Like, at least for a trial month or something. So you're probably wondering, like, did it do well? Well, as you might expect, Nintendo's projections were overblown. The most subscriptions that Giga ever had was around 100,000 users. For Giga, that was a massive. But for Nintendo, that was a flop. Giga was just this like little satellite radio thing that used to play weird ambient nature sounds, and now they're something much bigger. But for Nintendo, it was not what they wanted out of the, ser- the system. I'd, I'd just say I think probably because the threshold was too high, like you you'd need to do get a bunch of stuff done to get into it, and then it would also be a commitment to stick to it. So maybe the market wasn't ready because I think today it would be. So yeah, let's let's get into why it didn't catch on. I think you hit on I think you hit on the first part. Uh, high startup cost. It it was more of a luxury item, and the initial cost to get it was kind of a deterrent, right? Like they ran ads for it that. Oh man, we were watching them in the Discord the other day, and like, <laughs> there's like this this one where they're showing this new futuristic tech, and it's this woman with spiky '90s hair, mm-hmm. and she's in this white leather outfit in this white room. And I showed it to Andrea because it's entirely in Japanese, and she's like, "Oh, this is great." They're just like, "Wow, what amazing software!" This is the software of the future. It is the best. <laughs> so we were laughing. We're like, why aren't we all wearing white pleather outfits in our pristine uh, rooms full of our rounded TV sets that fly out of the wall with robots, right? Yeah. Come on, 2020, step your game up. Let's not get into 2020, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost over. It's almost, it's almost over. <laughs> and then we have to do 2020 New Game Plus. <laughs> Yeah, the harder version of 2020. (laughs) 2020, Ascension Level (laughs) 1. Hey, uh, yeah, so the the future isn't as shiny as people thought it would be, but I can imagine this advertisement very well because that's how the 90s imagined the 2000s to be. It's true. So anyway, yeah, high startup cost. Uh, Also, the Super Famicom slash SNES was sort of at the end of its life cycle, and so even though Nintendo had started working on this 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 project, right? Um, they were also working on the N64, and they started putting most of their support toward that. Also, don't forget, this is the mid-90s. The Sega Saturn had come out, which is an episode I would love to do sometime, as well as the PS1. The PS1 had hit the market, and so people with money, they just mostly wanted to put it toward newer consoles. Yeah. And then... They couldn't really expand the business model to the U.S. because remember, no satellite radio stations there yet. And when they tested it, like there wasn't really an interest. 
So the service went on for three years. When 1998 hit, Nintendo and Giga end up being at odds. Giga was losing a lot of money and by some reports were 8.8 billion yen in debt. That's a lot of money. There is some discussion that Nintendo internally thought that Giga was just bleeding money and that they had to like try and save them as they had done before. So Nintendo tried a few things to get them back um, where they wanted. They first proposed this like debt management plan that would get them out of the red and Giga refused. They tried to get them to transition over to working on a satellite peripheral for the N64. That didn't work out. And the last straw was when um, they kind of fucked around and didn't renew this license that they needed to like legally broadcast things in Japan. And Nintendo was like, they are mismanaging this company. We want out. In August 1998, Nintendo announced that they would be breaking off from Giga. They would stop giving Giga new gaming content by the end of March 1999 and recall the five executives that had been working with Giga, like like the liaisons, essentially. They then left uh, their partnership with Giga uh, around April 1999 of that year, but Giga kept maintaining the service. By June 30th of 2000, Broadcasts where players could download new games stopped. And then, in August of 2000, they closed down the service entirely. From what I can tell from there, Giga almost went bankrupt and ended up merging with a company called WireB, like a bee made out of wires, mm-hmm. WireB Incorporated in 2003 and got turned into something called Club Cosmo, in all caps. They lost a bunch of their rights to their original broadcasts. There was a legal mess. It was a whole thing. Then a few years later, the company folded. The new company folded, I think, around 2007. Okay. While I won't totally get into it, Nintendo tried again to create this service with the Nintendo 64, creating company something that they called the 64DD. The DD stood for disk drive. Mm-hmm. And uh, they partnered with this company called Randnet to create a similar system that used disks and also connected to the internet, but it failed pretty hard. And it's like almost not even worth talking about. It was that bad. Yeah. Okay. So what happened to the couple of people we talked about? So first off, um, Uwe Mura, the um, R&D2 guy, he worked for Nintendo until 2004 when he retired. He apparently still is called in occasionally over the years for consultations with their with that department. And uh, he works as a professor in Kyoto. And if we ever do stuff about Nintendo again, you'll probably see him pop up. Oh, cool. And uh, Yamamuchi, uh, I think I just said his name wrong, um, the president of Nintendo, he... He left the company, or he retired, rather, in 2002. Um, I don't want to get too far into his life because I feel like he deserves an episode of his own. Like, that guy is crazy ingrained in Nintendo, even up until he died, when he died in 2013. Yeah. But they, you know, they basically worked on this stuff, and then they left a few years later. Okay. So, looking to some, some, like, today. Like, let's, let's do some retrospective stuff here. It's really easy to... I don't know, say some rude things about Nintendo's business model and like all this crazy shit that they tried to make. But like, I have to give them props that they are always trying to innovate. Like, okay, yeah, like they're some of this stuff bombed really hard, but like 
it's really non-traditional and it tried to break down the barriers of what a gaming console could be. Like, think about it now, right? Like you get on Steam, it's this, like just from Steam, it's an online marketplace. There is voice chat built into the game. You could see what all your friends are doing. You can buy things, you can play things, right? In a time in which, you know, that wasn't feasible, that's like an impossible dream. And it laid a lot of groundwork for what we have now. And like, I really like that. Yeah, it's also, it, it kind of ties into other hardware discussions we had. And that is that it just because you have a technology doesn't mean that it's already completely explored in its abilities. Like the PDP-1 had to be explored for what it could do to for other people. Just And in the same way, all of those video game consoles weren't as self-conscious about what they were able to do. And so that had to be figured out. And some people dared to try things. Yeah. Okay. So here's an here's another thing that I find really interesting about this. So a lot of these games, they just really only ever existed as broadcasts. So you had to be at the right place at the right time to experience them. They, they made them, they sent them out through the satellite service, and then they were gone. So now in 2020, there's this huge underground market to try and find old memory cards and restore the games to try and preserve them, like the stuff that they had on them. Yeah. And so like there's this, this is this really obscure part, but an important part of Nintendo's gaming history. And since it never really left Japan, the only place that you can really get these cards is on the Japanese retro gaming market, right? Like secondary sellers, because they haven't made them in 22 years, yeah. right? And so this makes it really challenging to try and figure out how to not only save these things, but also if you wanted to play them in the modern day, how to emulate them, because they were only broadcast during that specific time. And then if you didn't have more memory, you'd just save over it. Right? Like, yeah, you'd, have to you'd be like, oh. yeah. yeah. So you delete them, they're gone. You never get them back. So, like, imagine you never bought enough space to save things. You just had enough space to take in whatever broadcast that they were doing at that time. So, like, Harvest Moon, right? It was four chapters. Sheer and the Wanderer, four chapters. So, if you're looking in the retro game market, it's way easier to find the last chapter than it is the first one because. All that's left on the card is whatever they saved last, right? So if you did all four episodes and then you quit using your Satellaview, you'd only have the fourth episode. So this episodic thing was like a huge drawback in the day, but it sucks in terms of video game preservation. Yeah. And so while a lot of games, they've saved them and they're able to be emulated, there are some that it only exist on this like dwindling number of physical memory cards that are just out there in the world. And so to make things even harder, um, some of these games would only let you play them a certain number of times before they disappeared or they had that time limit, right? But they would stay on the drive for indefinitely until you overrode it. And so sometimes they'll find old cards and they'll find that all the data for these games are on there, even if it had expired, so long as it hadn't been overwritten or deleted. That's pretty neat. Yeah. One issue too about emulation in modern day that I think is fascinating is like, remember I told you about the sound link stuff, right? Like quick review, right? They're timed. You're, you're, you're sort of streaming the audio for the game as this broadcast was coming through. Yeah. Right. So if you just play the games without the audio, like events just happen without context. And so 
there's this small group of people who are trying to like figure out how, like retroactively how this shit all worked. And, and there's been efforts to create ROMs that like link in the original audio so that you can play this to Teleview games as they're occurring. But that's assuming you can get the original audio at all. A lot of it's lost. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that they used was just like temporary memory. So like it would show up, it'd be this broadcast, and then it would delete itself even if it didn't delete the game. So there's just large parts of games that are missing that no one can restore. I find that super interesting because it's kind of like an historian trying to restore something that doesn't exist anymore and to fill out gaps to make a a piece of art even though it's more of a piece of technology whole again yeah and so i've also read that a lot of these people who are trying to save these games they won't use their real names uh these preservationists because they're worried nintendo is going to sue them for taking their old games and releasing them to the public as roms and so there's this whole like underground network of people who buys these these packs like anytime a pack shows up in Japan, they'll pool together their money and they'll buy it and then they'll send it to someone who hacks them and then they'll do a dump of all the ROMs on the internet. Nice. Yeah, but Nintendo is notorious for suing people that use their content without being allowed to do that. It's true. They're very litigious yes. in that way. So these people, when they buy these packs, one worry is that it's just like you don't know what's going to be on it until you hack into the memory storage. So every time they find an old one, it's a total gamble. And so like, some of them aren't even sure what existed in the first place. Like there's a pretty comprehensive like broadcast list, but it's not perfect. And so there's just like stuff out there that no one knows about. And then to make this even worse, right? It's been 25 years since the system came out. So like the packs are wearing out. It has corrupted data. The connectors are rotting in people's closets. And so like the longer they wait to try and save these games, the harder it becomes. Yeah, at, at some point it will not be possible anymore. Yeah, they will be gone. And so here's a quick story about how rare some of these packs are, because this was like probably the most fascinating part of all of this to me is like these preservation efforts. So there's a group called the Video Game History Foundation, and they're a nonprofit that tries to collect and restore old games and preserve them. Um, I've actually poked around a few of their articles before when I was researching stuff because they have like a blog and they show some of the stuff they got in. All right, 2016, there's a Japanese collector selling off four of these carts that contained Kirby minigames that had been thought to be lost because nobody had ever found a working memory card with downloads on them. And I guess that this person, like, I guess that they released six different minigames and this person had all of them across these cartridges. And uh, one of the guys from the, the foundation said, quote, finding three of them in the same place for, from one person is a miracle. Or something similar like that. Yeah. Maybe that, I don't know if that's a direct quote. But they solicited donations. They won the auction for $813 and they saved all of the Kirby games. And now they are a part of that museum. That's really awesome. I really like this quote from Vice that I pulled a bunch of info from. Um, Quote, a good chunk of the storied history of Nintendo, perhaps the most beloved gaming company of all time, lies buried among a mass of unmarked memory packs. (laughs) All right. So there's this PS1 game called... Punky Skunk. I actually owned this game as a kid. I think I bought it in like a bargain bin. 
And even when I played it then, I thought it was kind of cringe. Okay, so like the mascot was this like skunk mascot with this huge hair and he would do like all these extreme sports and he was trying to save his girlfriend from this wolf who was like vaguely dictatorial. And he, if you won these mini games, you would get these like highly sexy pictures of his girlfriend in like bikinis. It was really awkward, but regardless of my opinion of it, it was originally slated to be released on the SNES under the name Cooley Skunk, which is even worse. <laughs> hey, yeah, let's not get into people pitching names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could make a whole spiel out of this, but we will not. You will not know. <laughs> Docs isn't feeling it today. No. He's, he's, <laughs> he can't do the he can't do the banter. No. Okay, so just let that ruminate for a while. It was supposed to be released for the SNES. Okay, so they made a demo of the game, okay? And during that small window of time, they, they broadcast it over over Satellview, yeah. I think only once. Maybe they did like a rerun, right? So very briefly during this small window, someone had downloaded it, and the pack showed up in a Japanese gaming store and knowing what they had, they wanted $500 for it. And so this Satellaview community, they, they, they solicit all these donations, they buy it, they figure out, they send it to this guy who hacks Satellaview packs, they figure out that they could remove the demo limit that was built into the game and it wasn't just a demo, it was the full game start to finish. So this SNES version of this game that no one ever got to play existed only as a demo that was broadcast in a very specific time that they had to hack off of a memory card and they released the ROM to the internet. Crazy, right? And it's worth $500. Yeah, because it's so rare, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, rarity in itself does not cause a high price for something. It's demand that causes a high price. So it's these people that make this expensive, right? Because they want, yes. because they worship it. Yes, because the, in in a sense, by buying all of these packs up, they are creating a larger demand. But if you don't buy the packs, then you can't preserve what's on them. Yeah. So you asked me this earlier in the episode. Why doesn't Nintendo just re-release this shit? Right? Like this seems like a gold mine. And the answer is just nobody really knows. My best guess is that there's a huge amount of bureaucratic issues trying to get the rights to all of this settled. Like, all of the games, all of the companies, all of the, the voices that they used in the Soundlink stuff, right? And, but, okay, so let's say you don't use the old stuff. Why not try and do this again, right? Like, events that you can do during these broadcasts that you experience with other people? Like, wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, it kind of exists, but in a very reduced kind of ways. Like, you have in-game events that kind of take place simultaneously, but it's not what you described. It's not the yeah. that you have a live artist that kind of augments the game for you while you play it. And that is a concept that I would find interesting because as the, for the game as an interactive experience to actually... It, in my mind, it's actually, now that we play a lot of Death Stranding, it feels like a very Kojima thing to do. <laughs> it <laughs> does, example. doesn't it? Like he should probably get into that idea of having a game, and then you could, when you play at a certain time, you would get live commentary, or you would get a live orchestra playing for you, or 
I don't know, Kojima would walk around in the game as himself <laughs> and you could shake his hand and talk to him. Stuff like that. I did hear, I don't know how far you've gotten in that game, but I did hear he is in that game as a cameo. I have been looking for him. Maybe I'm not sure if I found him because I haven't, I don't know how Kojima looks like. I don't know. <laughs> I guess you'd have to go look at a picture. <laughs> so. Check him out. But yeah, I think the concept in general that you described that was um, done by this Satellaview man, this name. Just mm-hmm. Satellaview. Satellaview. Yeah. Just imagine you're the technician that kind of invented that. And you, you have a cool name for it. Like, we call this Vector because it's a cool, <laughs> easy name. And then your boss comes in like, mm, it has a satellite, satellite and you can view it. Let's call it Satellaview. We, we already named it. It's called Vector. Yeah, Satellaview is a great name. Yeah, let's just, I'm going to write this down. This is going to be how it's called. <laughs> we want people to simultaneously know exactly what this is and also have no idea what this is. Yeah. A name that's just snappy enough to be nonsensical. And then you just think about that you get that you that this is just your job and you don't get paid yeah. to have discussions like this. And so you just it's true. You just say yes and keep on going. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the concept uh, that this introduced seems really interesting. Now especially nowadays where people are figuring out again that computer games are an artistic outlet, this would totally fit into that. Yeah. I will say that Nintendo they are aware that Satellaview exists. It isn't like they've completely forgotten about it because if any of you played Super Mario Galaxy, you can unlock an outfit in the game that is a reference to Satellaview and it uses the colors from the Satellaview. So like, I guess they haven't totally forgotten about it, but like they haven't really done much of it that I can see. But I think this ties into a larger issue that I've I've talked about a few times already. I mean, we just did this whole spiel about it and that's just preservation in general. So, like, when I was working on this episode, I was thinking about all the stuff that you just can't play anymore. Like, so imagine all these things that are still out there in the world. There's not a ton of Satellaview stuff out there, but, like, there are still some Satellaview things that are lost. And it's not just Satellaview things. It's other games, too. And, and you know, what about things that were never released? Or what about things that were only released digitally and and you know, that you can't emulate as a ROM because it doesn't work that way. And and what do you do when you don't have a backup of something? What do you do when there isn't physical media to go back to? And I think the sound link stuff too, just to even tie into this further, is like you can't experience it in the way that it was intended. So like, I don't know, it just kind of makes me sad, right? Like I thought about, um, do you ever hear this game City of Heroes? Nope. There's an MMO for a while. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there was like a... There was an MMO for a while called City of Heroes where you'd make your you'd make your own superhero and then you would you would be in this MMO do superhero things but you could also be a villain and the villains and the heroes were at odds and you could establish like leagues of villains and heroes and it was this whole thing right well like they shut the whole system down it's gone and so like even though there are private servers and even though they usually get cracked down on because they don't want them to, mm-hmm. um, you can never go back to that experience, right? And, and so, like, expanding this even further, like, just think about all the crazy amount of consoles and uh, information and games and all this shit that they made that we're never going to get, right? And, like, in the articles, I know I'm just talking and I'm not giving you a chance to give you two cents here, but, like, in the articles, there was this, they talked about this sense of missing out right? Like, I'll never get to experience this. And there's something inherently sad about that for me, right? Like, 
you'll never get to do that. You'll never get to be there. But like, I also think that's just part of the human experience. You can't, you can't do everything. Back you can't to the human everywhere. experience again. Yeah. 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 Um, it kind of makes sense though, but um, data decay is a problem that we are, we are running into more and more and it disappears like any kind of information that we amassed over the, over the time. And we'll have to cope even though we are dwarfs on the shoulders of giants, we will not experience the same thing. It's just impossible. It's just like, I don't know. For, I always think of the first time I played World of Warcraft. And I loved that experience. And mm-hmm. it recently, the classic version got re-released. Remastered, not remastered, just re-released. And yeah. it just wasn't, it was cool. But it just it just didn't, didn't give me that kick. Yeah. But that could also be because we're older now. And we have less time to throw ourselves into that game for 700 hours a month, right? Like, yeah. and it's, it's, isn't it the same with these other games? Like, of course, I could re-experience them, yeah. but I, I wouldn't be the person that would enjoy them anymore. I think it depends on the game. I'll give you an example from my own life. If I'm having a really bad day, I love to just get a glass of wine, sit down with my new wireless 8-bit do you know, a uh, Genesis controller that isn't a real Genesis controller mm-hmm. and play Sonic the Hedgehog three. I have the physical cart. Uh, you know, I go back to it. It's just as fun to me as it was back then. Like a comfort, like a comfort game. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of like a comfort game. Cause yeah. I know where all the shit is. I, it, it makes me feel good. But like, what about all these games that got released that we'll never get to, to play? What if your favorite game is out there and you can't experience it? And so like, I think that this ties into this debate about whether or not we should be allowed to emulate things if companies abandoned them, right? Like there's always this back and forth about whether emulation is okay and whether legally that's okay. But like, I'm also of the mindset of, you know, okay, if there's this really awesome game that existed and you're never going to get to buy it again, they don't sell it. The company's defunct, right? Like how else are you going to play it? You know? Anyway, if you're one of the people who owns one of these things, right? If you're the rare listener who suddenly has one of these things in your closet or you're like, ah, grandpa had one of those. um, I really feel like you kind of owe it to the greater community to reach out to the places that do these preservation efforts because you might have one of the missing pieces of gaming history that is lost to time and we can save it before it's corrupted. Yeah. You could do that. If you want to check out what some of these games look like, I would Google Satella blog, like Satella view, but Satella blog, someone like a group of people are doing preservation work and they have access to all of the, like the ROM dumps and stuff. And they talk about what came in and what they found. And um, it might be worth a look if you want to look into this, these kind of things. So what's your thought on all this docs? I kind of love this and I didn't know anything about this at all. And now I think about why I don't have this or why I don't have a similar experience and why there isn't more games that try to be experimental about stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, this is, I think what's really cool to me too, is just, this was the nineties, right? Like this is something, if you told me that this came out 10 years ago, I'd be like, Oh, okay. This is the fucking nineties, dude. Like this was crazy tech for that time. Yeah. Pioneers of, I guess, remote video game distribution in a sense. Yeah. So I think you guys should look into this stuff. It was fascinating to me. I didn't know it existed either until I was trying to do the Harvest Moon stuff. And I was like, the fuck is Satellaview? But I'm really glad I looked because this was just so weird. 
right? Like I can reach into a grab bag of Nintendo's weird adventures and pull out something that tanked horribly or whatever, because they have lots. But like this one stuck out to me. Yeah, thank you for this. This was really informative. Do you have any sources you want to share? Yeah, so I'll put a, um, as always, I'll try and put the source list up onto like a Google Drive, like a Google Doc that I'll link to in the episode description. The one that I used the most was Nintendo's Forgotten Console, how the company tried to make downloadable content work in 1995, and how preservationists today are racing against time to retrieve a chunk of gaming history by Heidi Kemp's written in September 9th, 2015. And then a whole bunch of other articles I use to pull like little pieces of that. There's an older bit from, there's a 1995 article that got translated that I used for a lot of the early stuff. It was part of a, like a long series called How the Famicom Was Born. I'll put a link to that in there as well. Um, and then again, just mostly smaller articles about the different games that were pulled off cartridges. Cool. So... Well, thanks, Docs. I appreciate you listening to my story about some weird piece of tech. Yes, and I hope we'll see each other for episode 10 when we have episode 10. our first goal of recording 10 episodes nobody can listen to. Yeah, so funny enough, <laughs> funny story. So when Docs and I decided, well, probably sure we'll talk about this in episode 10 too, but um, when Docs and I decided to do a podcast, we set a goal. And the goal was, let's see if we can do 10 of these and make ourselves do 10 of these. Because if we could do 10, then that would mean that we had the gumption to actually keep up with it right and so you know here we are coming in on that yeah so that's pretty cool yeah looking forward to that so thank you thank you very much and i hope that you have a good day and i hope that everybody else has a good day as well and we are just arriving in the next year Be, be nice to people and i don't know separate your garbage stuff like that save yes gotta save this planet because nobody else is willing to do it yeah hey listen if when you when you're moving into the new year let me tell you something i talk to docs about all the time even if the world seems crazy even if things seem awful even if you're really struggling just remember that what you can still do on your own level matters that being a good person and doing things for others still matters even if everyone else is shitty and does bad things you can still make the decision to do the right one and in doing so can maybe feel better and have some control over your situation, right? Like you made the right choice, even though bad odds were given to you. So that's my advice to you in this new year is just, just try to be good people, right? Like keep it up. We can get through this together. Thank you for that. And I hope (laughs) all of you have a good year 2021. See you. Have a good one, friends. See ya.